Over the last couple of months, I've been on a few different podcasts and I wanted to recommend them to you, or at least, you know, the episodes I'm on. The first one is I Like to Like Things, where I talked about my favorite hobby that is not podcast or true crime related, and that is throwing three-course dinner parties with cocktail pairings. I don't think that's a part of me that I've ever shared on the show because it's entirely irrelevant, but I went on there and discussed it. Again, that is I Like to Like Things. Then next, I went on Cold Crimes and Cabernet, where I told them about conscious development and the deaths of the members, which we've discussed here on Crimelines. And then the most recent one is Beyond Bizarre True Crime, where I talked about one of the most bizarre cases I've ever covered. I'll leave the name of all of these shows in the show notes, and I would love it if you would check them out. When a crime scene is contaminated, crucial evidence is lost, and the investigation struggles to make up for that lost ground. But what happens when a crime has two vital scenes, and both are contaminated? You end up with a 40-year cold case. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This week's episode, The Burger Chef Murders, was suggested to me by Karen, so thank you very much for sending it in. And thank you to some of my Patreon supporters who jumped in a live stream with me to pick cases for this month. This is an Indiana crime, and I recently met, as much as you can meet anyone on Twitter, an Indiana-based true crime writer who covers lesser-known cases. She has over 200 cases up, and you can check them all out on Reddit under Bones of Autumn. I know that you probably won't remember that by the end of this episode, so I am going to leave a direct link to her Reddit profile with all of her articles in the show notes. I scrolled and scrolled through several pages of her articles, and I only recognized two cases. So if you like those lesser-known cases, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, you need to check out Bones of Autumn on Reddit. Again, link in the show notes. This week here on Crime Lines, we are actually not covering a super lesser-known case. The Burger Chef murders got a lot of local coverage, but it has recently gotten a lot of national coverage, particularly through podcasts. One podcast in particular is the Murder Sheet podcast. It really impressed me, and I asked the hosts to sit down with me to discuss the case. So on Wednesday of this week, we will have an after show, which is a new feature I'm hoping to do every so often when there is a case that may benefit our understanding or our perspective through more conversation on it. The hosts of Murder Sheet, Anya and Kevin, are definitely the people who can give us a different look at this case. Anya is a journalist with Business Insider, and Kevin is an attorney who has worked with the family of one of the victims. We had a great conversation about this case, and I'm really interested in your feedback, especially after you hear from us on the after show. But we need to jump into this case because you need that information that we're going to discuss in the after show. So Burger Chef, to start with, was a restaurant chain that you may not have heard of. Their last store closed in 1996 after the company had been bought out by Hardee's and slowly transitioned away from the Burger Chef brand. But they were originally a regional fast food place before expanding. And in the 1970s, Burger Chef was the biggest fast food chain after McDonald's. Not that this has anything to do with anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting because a lot of the things we think of as going hand in hand with fast food started with Burger Chef. They were the first ones to do combo meals of burger, fries, and a soda. They were the first to have children's meals that came with an extra little thing, predating Happy Meals from McDonald's by six years. So while to our ears today in 2022, Burger Chef may just sound like a little regional restaurant, it was pretty much a big deal when this case takes place. 
The restaurant we are talking about today was in Speedway, Indiana, which is less than 20 minutes from downtown Indianapolis. On Friday, November 17, 1978, the Speedway Burger Chef closed at 11 p.m. With the normal closing procedure, the workers would finish the the end-of-the-day cleaning routine, which would often last until 1 or 2 a.m., depending on the night and how many people were scheduled. A bit after midnight, a 17-year-old employee of Burger Chef named Brian wasn't working that night, but he drove by and decided to stop in to help them finish cleaning. He knew that someone else had called out that night due to car issues, and they were already short-staffed. And then when he drove by, he didn't see the assistant manager's car outside, so it looked like she may not have been there either at that point, and they would really need the help. Brian drove around the back of the building and noticed that the back door was actually cracked open. So rather than knock on a regular door to be let in, he parked and let himself in through that open door. Brian walked through the restaurant calling out, but no one was there. He even checked the freezer and the manager's office. In the office, Brian saw that the safe was open and the register drawers were all out. Not sure what he should do at this point, he did call someone who told him he needed to call the police. It looked like there had been a robbery and now the employees were missing. When a Speedway officer arrived, he looked through the building. He found no trace of the four people who were working that night. They were 20-year-old assistant manager Jane Freet and three high school students, 17-year-old Ruth Shelton, 16-year-old Daniel Davis, and 16-year-old Mark Flemons. The officer found several rolls of change that were still in the safe, about $100 worth, and two empty currency bags. So it looked like someone had taken cash but left coins behind. Both Ruth and Jane's purses were found inside the restaurant, but Jane's car was gone. Part of the cleaning-slash-closing to-do list had been completed, but not all of it. There were no signs of a struggle, and the officer thought it looked like a petty employee theft. The four would resurface when they were done partying with the money they took. Now, never mind that the two young women left their purses behind. Never mind the four weren't known as the types to do anything like that, particularly with each other. We're talking a 20-year-old woman and a 16-year-old brand-new employee and then two other high school students. They didn't have a lot of connections to each other outside of the context of being co-workers. They didn't even all go to the same school. But for some reason, they decided to head off with the others and commit a serious theft of their workplace, leaving a door wide open in the process. But this was the working theory in the early hours of November 18th. As such, no evidence was collected at the restaurant and no photographs were taken. When the day crew showed up in the morning, they finished cleaning up the store as instructed and opened the doors to customers. It was determined that the amount of money taken was around $580, which if we put it into today's money in that context, we're talking a little less than $2,500. Before the store even opened, around 4.30 in the morning, the car of Jane Freet, the assistant manager, was found. It was about a mile and a half from the restaurant, parked in a residential area near the Speedway Police Department. The driver's side door was locked and the passenger side was unlocked and the keys were gone. It started dawning on investigators that these weren't just some kids off partying somewhere, and the urgency increased. The only open door, which was that back door, took on a significance as this started being looked at as a possible abduction. The back door would be opened at night generally to bring the trash out. If someone wanted to enter the store and rob it or kidnap four people— That would be the perfect time. 
But by the time the investigation shifted from the employees being the thieves to them being victims, the restaurant had been cleaned. Fingerprints were gone, hair fibers, and anything else was gone. Even if there were small amounts of blood that weren't seen, all of that was cleaned up. Jane's car was impounded, and at least that was searched. There was a palm print found on the outside of the car. But databases to match this sort of thing were still a few years off. And even when they were developed, for decades, it would only be fingerprints, not palm prints. There was also a massive foot and air search of the area around the restaurant and the car to find any trace of the four missing employees. From what I can tell, nothing that was found has been made public except for one thing, a gun. And it wasn't actually found by the searchers or the police, but rather a homeowner. Early on Saturday morning, this man saw two other men in his front yard, and they appeared to be looking for something that was on the ground. They eventually left, and the man didn't think much more about it until he went to mow his lawn that afternoon, and he found a 38 caliber gun in the grass. This home was near an intersection around a mile away from the burger chef. The gun was picked up by the police, and we will get back to it later when it comes up again. I'm trying to stick with the timeline here, otherwise we would be doubling back every two to three minutes. So on Sunday, more than 24 hours after Jane, Ruth, Danny, and Mark went missing, the Indianapolis Star ran an article with some updates. A lieutenant told the media that he didn't think it was a prank, and he didn't think they left on their own. He said he wouldn't have stayed up all night working the case if he thought that. Hours after this article ran, around 3 p.m. on November 19th, this was confirmed not to be a prank. In rural Johnson County, which is a good 20 miles from the burger chef, a man was walking on his property when he came across the bodies of two teenagers. He called the police. He had found the first two victims of the Burger Chef murders. This was 16-year-old Danny Davis and 17-year-old Ruth Shelton. They were both found still in their Burger Chef uniforms. They were lying face down, side by side, each shot execution style multiple times. A short search located the other two victims. 20-year-old Jane Freed was found stabbed in the chest. She had been stabbed twice with such force that the handle of the knife had broken off. The handle was not at the scene, but the four-and-a-half-inch blade was left in Jane's chest. So they knew this wasn't a kitchen knife or a pocket knife. It was the type of knife you would carry in a sheath. The style of this knife was not made public for many, many years. It is believed Jane wasn't shot because she got up and tried to run after seeing Danny and Ruth murdered. And it's believed 16-year-old Mark Flemons had run as well. It was initially reported that it wasn't clear if he was beaten or if he ran into a tree or a branch when he ran off because he had a severe head wound. But Mark's cause of death was not the head injury. When he fell, unconscious, his head was lower than the rest of his body due to the slope of the ground and just the position his body fell into. This caused him to asphyxiate on his own blood. More recent reporting has quoted an investigator as saying he believed Mark had been beaten with a chain. And in talking with the Murder Sheet podcast, they've also heard it speculated that it may have been brass knuckles. WTHR quoted an investigator as saying there were bruises on Mark that appeared to have happened upwards of an hour before death. So there may have been multiple sources of injuries. It does seem unlikely to me that the killers would have just left Mark there, unconscious but alive. It's only because of the position he fell in that he died, and it seems like such happenstance for cold-blooded killers, and yes, killers, because for many reasons we'll get into, this was very, very likely a two- or three-man job. 
Now, Kevin with the Murder Sheet podcast theorized that maybe the killers hadn't realized Mark didn't make it very far and they couldn't find him in the dark or they couldn't take the time to look for him. All four of the Burger Chef employees were abducted and then killed, likely not long after their disappearances. Jane Freet was the oldest victim. She was the only one who had graduated high school already. She was 20 years old and had worked for Burger Chef for three years. She had moved to the Speedway location just six months previously, and three months after the move, she was promoted to assistant manager. Burger Chef was not a job for Jane. It was a career, and she hoped to continue climbing the ladder in the food industry. Customers loved Jane because she was so friendly and responsive. The regulars even called her Sweet Jane because she smiled all the time. And her boss liked her, too, because she was responsible. She did what needed to be done. It seems clear she would have continued to find success in her career. Ruth Shelton was a junior in high school and 17 years old. She was an honor student focused in math and computers. Today, in 2022, we still have conversations about women pursuing careers in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. We talk about attracting more women to the field. And here is Ruth in 1978, ready to take on a career in that field. But she was also very artistic, taking piano and voice lessons. She loved creating art and crafting. She just had a very creative mind. Prior to working for Burger Chef, she worked at the Dunkin' Donuts that shared a parking lot with the Burger Chef. She left because Burger Chef paid a little bit better, but she did want to go back to the Dunkin' Donuts because she actually liked that job better. The manager of Burger Chef, however, had talked her into staying. Danny Davis was a 16-year-old honor student interested in planes and photography. And when I say he was interested in planes, I mean he had plans to join the Air Force after high school. And when I say he was interested in photography, I mean he had his own dark room in his house. It doesn't sound like Danny did much by half measure. Though he's been described as reserved, when Danny was with his close friends, he was always happy and cracking jokes. Danny had only recently been hired at the Burger Chef. Mark Flemons was 16 years old and the youngest of seven children. Most of his siblings at this point were adults and out on their own. He came from a devout Jehovah's Witness family and was known for his upbeat attitude and the care he took in his appearance. Mark's principal told the Indianapolis Star that his freshman year was a little rocky as Mark adjusted to the demands of high school. But one of his friends put this in a little bit of a different light when he was interviewed on the Murder Sheet podcast. Mark was one of the only Black students in Speedway High School, and it wasn't entirely the work in the classroom that was the problem, but rather the racism he faced in the hallways. But in the first semester of his sophomore year, he had brought his grades up. Mark had only worked at the Burger Chef for a few months. He didn't normally work on Friday nights, but he was filling in for a coworker. After agreeing to take on the shift, something came up that Mark wanted to do instead of filling in for this coworker, and he did try to back out or swap shifts again. But when it didn't work out, he went and kept his commitment to work that night. These are the four victims that had been taken from a restaurant, transported to a property in a rural area, and killed where they were found. And this is where this case diverges from the other store robbery turned murder cases we've talked about. I've covered Brown's Chicken and Lane Bryant. There are others that I've followed but haven't covered yet, like the National Supermarket in St. Louis. All of these had employees and or customers killed in the store. I've never seen a botched robbery turn into a quadruple kidnapping. What a huge risk to take moving the victims to a secondary location. 
And that is a big part of why we know there was definitely more than one person involved in this. Controlling four victims in the store, corralling them into the parking lot, transporting them, shooting two, having to chase down two. The only way this works is if there were multiple people controlling Jane, Ruth, Danny, and Mark that night. At the time the bodies were found, the property owner was not open to speaking with the media. But some neighbors did, and they said that the neighborhood was fairly remote and not somewhere you would just stumble upon. They believed one of the killers would have had to have been familiar with the area to have found it. The crime scene did offer some evidence, but it was plagued with some major issues, too as in too many cooks in the kitchen. The more people walking through a crime scene, even trained investigators, the higher likelihood of contamination. So let's go over the evidence that was found that has been made public. One, the palm print on Jane's car. Two, the knife blade. Three, a recovered 38 handgun. And four, the bullets from the two shooting victims. They were also for a 38, though they could have been shot from a 357. It is not believed they were shot from the 38 found in the lawn, but we will get to that in a minute. Right now, we have to talk about the witnesses. Yes, there were some witnesses to something that night. The witnesses have varying memories with varying levels of credibility. A major witness in this case was a 16-year-old named George who was outside the Burger Chef that night. His girlfriend, Mary, worked at the Dunkin' Donuts, and he met her there when she got off work. They then went around to the back of the parking lot to drink and smoke a joint. George didn't have a lighter, so he went into the Burger Chef and asked for matches, which he was given— This would have been right about closing time, so we're talking 11 p.m. or a little later. While George and Mary were back there smoking, two men approached them. Both were white men in their 30s and a little scruffy looking. One of the two men told George that there had been vandalism in the area and that they better leave. Being that George and Mary were teens doing something they weren't supposed to do and these were adults, with some sort of authority just by virtue of being adults, they left. George said that when he and his girlfriend left, Jane's car was still in the parking lot, and this would have been around 11.15 to 11.30. George walked Mary back to the Dunkin' Donuts where she waited on her ride home from work, and George walked home. George described one of the men as having fair hair and being clean-shaven, while the other had a beard, and Mary backed up this description. The police put both of them under hypnosis. There was a third witness who had seen a bearded man in the Burger Chef earlier that night. Perhaps the man had nothing to do with it, or perhaps he was casing the place. The police hoped to get a better description of both of the men through hypnosis and anything else George and Mary may have seen that they didn't realize they saw. They created sketches based on what they learned, and later busts were made of these persons of interest. They then released the sketches into the press pretty early in the investigation, and it turned into what I imagine was an absolute nightmare. It was overwhelming for me just to follow it day by day in the newspaper archives, These sketches were fairly generic-looking, therefore they fit a lot of people, and that brought in a lot of tips. Everyone and their mother knew a bearded man in the 1970s. Now, first let me preface this by saying my father was not in Indiana at the time. However, he does kind of look like that sketch. It's one of those very generic-looking sketches So it fit a lot of people. The calls came flooding in, and the newspapers only really reported on the promising ones, the tips that the police took seriously enough to follow up on. 
For instance, there were two men arrested in Chicago, and the second their pictures hit the news, the calls came in. Because one of these men had a beard and one didn't. That automatically got them on the suspect list. But not all of the tips were just based on these sketches. A housekeeper at the Days Inn in a different suburb of Indianapolis found two stacks of Burger Chef time cards. We're talking a few inches thick each, and they were tucked in a hallway near some pinball machines. When the police got them, they realized they were time cards from 1975 and 1976, but they weren't from the Speedway Burger Chef. They were from a different location. But this seems like a very random but very specific lead that is still not connected in any way. It took the police a lot of time running down all of these promising yet ultimately fruitless leads. But let's go ahead and talk about the gun that was found in a man's lawn near the burger chef. I promised we'd get to it, and it seems like surely that has to be connected. The gun was a 38, but ballistics didn't match what was found at the murder scene. But if there were multiple people involved in the robbery, it's possible there were also multiple guns, even if they weren't all used in the murder. The police were able to trace this gun back to the owner, even though it was unregistered. Because, it just so happened, that around the time it is believed the employees were being robbed and or kidnapped, a police officer pulled a man over at that intersection. The man was driving erratically because he was driving under the influence. Not wanting to get caught with an unregistered gun on top of intoxicated driving, the man tossed the gun out the window and the officer didn't notice. The man and his friend went back to the yard the next day to look for the gun, but they couldn't find it. The man said he has the perfect alibi here. A police officer pulled him over around the time the kidnapping happened. He couldn't have done it, and this officer was his alibi witness. But some of the investigators thought this was just too big of a coincidence, and maybe the man was connected to the robbery. Maybe he changed his mind about it, but his accomplices went ahead without him. He may not have done it. But he might know something, something he would reveal with enough pressure. But he didn't. This really was a straight-up coincidence. He threw the gun so he wouldn't get caught with it. End of story. Though his name was not in the papers, he found that the intense police scrutiny on him really took its toll even after he had been more or less cleared. He spoke with the Murder Sheet podcast about his experience of being pulled into a case like this, and I really think it's worth the listen, even if you don't listen to every other episode. I think this one has an important message, and that episode is called The Driver, if you want to go look for it. Like I said, his name was not in the paper, so at least he didn't have that kind of public scrutiny. However, the fact that they had found him, the owner of the gun that showed up, was in the papers. Aside from that and releasing the sketches, the police were pretty tight-lipped through this entire thing. And according to an Indianapolis Star article from November 21st, 1978, four days after the disappearances, a Speedway officer expressed to the paper that information wasn't only being kept from the media. This officer said even patrol officers weren't getting the information, which I'm sure was an attempt to avoid leaks. But this officer, who remained anonymous, said that they didn't feel they could do their jobs when they didn't know what they should be looking for. And wherever we see a lack of information in a high-profile case, we see a lot of speculation to fill in those blanks. A major rumor going around was that this was drug-connected somehow. People weren't entirely on the same page about what the alleged drug connection was. Some thought drugs were being sold out of the Speedway burger shaft. Other rumors were that a victim owed a dealer a lot of money 
or a victim's family member owed a lot of money, and pretty much every variation of a drug theory you can imagine was going around. And I'm not ready to rule it out entirely as the underlying motive here. I'm not talking a specific drug theory stands out to me as likely because there isn't really proof for them. But as you'll see, drugs come up again and again in this case, and I think it is not unlikely drugs were somehow involved. Another early theory was that it was a robbery, but it took a turn when one of the employees recognized one or more of the robbers. This would possibly be Mark, since he wasn't supposed to work that night and routinely did not work on Friday nights. They may not have anticipated him being there. Danny Davis was a new employee who didn't routinely close, so that someone else a robber may not think would have been there. But you really couldn't read an article, an early one, on this case without it bringing up some other crimes that happened in Speedway in 1978 and wondering if they were connected. This is a town that had two murders ever. And then it ended up with the murder of a grandmother, a bombing that maimed a man, more bombs, and then the abduction and murders of the four Burger Chef employees, Jane, Ruth, Danny, and Mark. Not only did this all happen in 1978, it all happened in a four-month period. It is reasonable to ask if a spate of violence in a town that usually didn't see it was connected. The first 1978 incident was the murder of Julia Cyphers. Julia was a 65-year-old grandmother who, along with her husband Fred, had two of their grandchildren living with them in the summer of 1978. While Julia was home in Speedway with her family on a Saturday in July, a man knocked on the door. It was around 3 p.m., and this man, who she didn't recognize, asked about some items she had for sale at a yard sale a week or two before. Julia still had the items he asked about, so she went outside to bring the man to the garage to see them. Her husband, Fred, went with her, and he helped pull the things out of the garage so the man could see them, and then he went back inside. When Fred was back inside... This man pulled out a 25 caliber pistol and shot Julia once in the back of the head. Her husband, Fred, heard the noise and looked out. He saw the man pulling out of the driveway and his wife dead beside the family car. Julia Cyphers was not the type of person to make enemies, but this looked like a targeted attack. Nothing was stolen. And the killer had waited until Fred was inside to commit the murder rather than just killing them both. Fred was not a target, but Julia was. The investigation soon identified someone Julia did not like and may have had issues with, and that man was Brett Kimberlin. I'm going to give you an incredibly abridged version of what happened with Brett Kimberlin. If you want to know more, there is a book called Citizen K, The Deeply Weird American Journey of Brett Kimberlin by Mark Singer. That's where you're going to find all the details you wanted and lots of details you probably didn't even want. But I would recommend reading that if you're curious more about this person. So Brett Kimberlin knew Julia through her daughter, Sandra. The two became very good friends, and Brett forged a relationship with Sandra's daughters, particularly one of them who we are going to call Shelly because she was a minor through all of this. Shelly was 10 when Brett and her mother met, and Brett was 20. Brett took Shelly on after-school outings. He took her on trips out of state, including to Disney World and Mexico. And these were solo trips. Her mother and sister were not along for them. Over the years, people questioned the appropriateness of Brett's interest in Shelley. To be clear, he was never charged with any crimes in relation to this. But those concerns about the appropriateness and what was going on are the basis for Brett and Julia not liking each other. 
Four years after Sandra and Brett had met and he was part of Shelley's life, she was 14, and Julia was concerned about Brett and her granddaughter. It seems that Sandra was also pulling back from Brett at this time. So Julia had Shelley and her older sister move in shortly before her murder because of these concerns. So the police wondered if Brett, now cut off from Shelley because of Julia, may have had enough of a grudge to be a suspect, so they decided to investigate him. Now, we do know he could not have pulled the trigger. Julia and Fred had both seen the shooter, and if he was Brett, they wouldn't have even opened the door. So we know Brett didn't kill Julia himself, but the authorities were looking more at a murder-for-hire angle. During the investigation into Julia's murder, they uncovered evidence that Brett, who was a 24-year-old health food store owner, may have been selling marijuana as his real money-making operation. So there were then two investigations going on that included Brett, a murder investigation and a drug investigation. And then on September 1st, about a month after Julia's murder, there were bombs set off in Speedway. There were multiple blasts almost daily for about six days. I will say that the bombs were mostly positioned to where they would do damage but not injure anyone. They weren't in crowded places like a store or a mall. But there was one that went off in a parking lot when a couple was nearby. They were both injured with the man's leg being so badly broken that it had to be amputated. The police eventually believed that they had tracked the parts from the bombs back to Brett Kimberlin, though Brett maintained his innocence then and, I believe, to this day. As they were building a case against Brett for the bombings, Brett was arrested for illegal use of government seals when he allegedly tried to photocopy Department of Defense IDs. Brett was then released pending trial. So he was out of jail at the time of the Burger Chef murders, though under investigation. It was in February 1979, a few months later, that Brett was arrested again. He was in Texas to unload marijuana from a plane. Obviously, this was a makeshift field, not a real airport, because you don't run planes full of drugs through regular airports if you can help it. But the plane started having some mechanical issues and needed to find a real airport to land in for their own safety. So the crew dumped 250-pound bales of marijuana out of the plane so that they could land and not end up in prison for smuggling. Brett was arrested when he was caught trying to get the bales of hay from where they fell. In all of this, somehow one of Brett's associates started looking particularly suspicious to the police. They took his picture to Fred Cyphers, who positively identified him as Julia's murderer. However, Fred was ill with cancer at the time and died shortly after this. Because the key witness against the man was dead, the grand jury failed to indict him. Brett was convicted in the bombings for marijuana charges and the illegal government seals charge. Twenty years after he was released from prison, Brett did try to appeal his convictions. Prison is not the only consequence of being a convicted felon. There are other restrictions that can follow you for the rest of your life, and that was the relief Brett was seeking. Literally days before I am recording this, the appeal was denied. But let's go back to 1978. People were wondering if all of these crimes were connected. The authorities have said they do not suspect Brett had anything to do with the Burger Chef murders at this point, though the rumors of a drug connection in the murders and then Brett having drug enterprises and the bombing conviction means his name keeps coming up when people are evaluating this case. Some people say he looked like the clean-shaven man in the sketch, but I've mentioned the sketches were pretty vague. And I also think the two witnesses would have said something about Brett Kimberlin's size if Brett was the clean-shaven man. 
An Indianapolis Star article about him referred to him as diminutive and a little man within the same article. In looking up pictures, he looks like he's probably around 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and he has a slight build. I think George and Mary would have noticed that, and I highly doubt that even a 16-year-old would look at Brett Kimberlin at the age of 24 and think he looked like he was in his 30s. I think the connection between the Speedway bombings and the Burger Chef murders has largely been dropped by both the investigators and the public. But there is one earlier tip that has had some lasting power, and it came the day after the bodies were found. This tip was that a man in a bar in Greenwood, Indiana, essentially confessed to the murders, at least according to some interpretations and memories of what he may have said. People were in a bar drinking, so fuzzy memories of what exactly was said has proven to be an issue. In one version, the main version that's out there, he said that he was supposed to be involved, but he left, and they were only supposed to tie the kids up, not abduct them or kill them. No one was supposed to get hurt. The man's name was David Cathcart, and he was questioned and polygraphed by police, but he denied direct involvement. He did name the names of people he said were involved, and this has been described as a robbery gang. It was a group of at least five men, possibly more, who robbed fast food stores in the area. They tended to team up in subgroups of two to three to carry out these holdups. The men named had robbery convictions, and there were a few points of similarity between how this group operated and the Burger Chef robbery. The group used 38s, according to David, which is the same as the murder weapon. And they almost always hit on Fridays or Saturdays after the store closed when they knew there would be the largest amount of cash on hand. Even the location here tracks because the Burger Chef chain was a favorite of this group, since one of them had a wife who worked at a Burger Chef. It wasn't the one in Speedway, but like any other chain, the basics of each restaurant was the same. In her day-to-day chit-chat with her husband about work, she had inadvertently given him all sorts of helpful information to know if you wanted to rob the store. Things that are pretty basic, like where the safe was, how they use the back door to take the trash out after closing, how many people would be working at close, and even just the fact that they mostly employed teenagers, making them a little bit more vulnerable and a lot more likely to comply. And in other robberies, according to David, the robbers would park their car some distance from their target and walk up so no witnesses would be able to identify their vehicle or license plate. In the context of the Burger Chef murders, we know Jane's car was driven away from the store. So was it driven to the robber's vehicle? I considered the possibility that the car may have been driven all the way out to the murder site and then driven back and dumped closer to the store, but the evidence from Jane's odometer does not support it having been driven that far. So it sounds like they used Jane's car to get to a second vehicle and used the second vehicle to transport everyone to Johnson County. But there is a hole in this. Jane had a Vega. It wouldn't have had space for everyone. We have four employees and two robbers. Where did they all sit? They would have been folded up like beach chairs in there. So was it possible that one robber took Jane's car to get the robber's vehicle while someone else held the four captive at the restaurant? Then robber number one drove back to the restaurant in the robber's van, loaded the four into that, and then drove off. There was a witness who said a van was in the parking lot that night. There are witnesses who said they saw a van driving very quickly in the area, so possibly a van. It's just not clear to me why the robbers would have parked within sight of the Speedway Police Department or why they would dump Jane's car there. It seemed, again, like an unnecessary risk. 
Of the people in this robbery gang, or at least the named members of it, three have died and two are still alive. This theory remains far from ruled out. Something I mentioned on Twitter while I was researching this case is that you'll find articles that say the investigators know who did it but can't prove it. Well, the investigators who know who did it don't actually agree with each other on who did it. But this robbery gang is one of those theories that some investigators are pretty married to. And I will say it is a persuasive theory, though there isn't enough evidence to say for sure it was these people responsible. The group did commit another robbery where a clerk was shot, but he survived. And that shooting was nothing like this. He was shot in the store, and he wasn't even shot in the head or the chest like a kill shot. He was shot in the groin area. So why, if this robbery gang did it, did they veer so far from their usual M.O., which is literally just to rob at gunpoint and move on? Instead, they took the employees to a secondary location and killed them there. And that is a question mark on every single theory in this case, not just the motive of killing them, but why transport them 20 miles to do so? Why not kill them in the store? That is a stumbling block that has just never been figured out. The next major theory was brought to the police in 1981, and it was based on the statements made by a young man named Alan Pruitt. Jane Freet's older brother was locked up on drug charges when Alan approached him in jail and made a comment more or less giving condolences over Jane's death. That sounds normal enough, except it had been three years at this point since she had been murdered, and whatever Alan actually said, or maybe rather how he said it, it did spark a confrontation between the men. This caught the attention of the prison staff, and soon they learned Alan claimed to have information not just on the Burger Chef murders, but on another murder he said was connected. I am going to be clear from the start that Alan's story has changed over the years, The things I am about to say have largely been recanted by him, but that doesn't mean everyone who heard the story knows that it was recanted, so it will keep coming up. I'm going to go over what he said first and what he has said in the most recent interview I could find with him, which was with Murder Sheet Podcast, of course. The basics were that Alan was out at a Speedway club with some friends. They left the club and went over to the Dunkin' Donuts next to the Burger Chef. While there, Alan went out into the parking lot that is between the two businesses. There were witnesses who saw him there, so we know he was definitely there. That's about the only fact we know for sure here. Alan said he saw a van parked at the Burger Chef and a group of people came out of the Burger Chef, some getting into the van and some getting into Jane's car. The people were the employees of the Burger Chef and then two men named Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby. Alan said that one of the men slammed one of the teens into the van where he hit his head and then he was put into the van. He described the person assaulted, as being Black, and Mark was both the only victim we know with any injuries that may match that, and also the only one who was Black. Alan didn't immediately think that there was an issue here, though. He thought that it was just an argument between a group of friends who were heading out for the night and not some type of kidnapping. Alan said he realized something was wrong the next day. He took a ride with Tim Willoughby, Jeff Reed, and then Tim Willoughby's girlfriend, Marianne Higginbotham, the day after the Burger Chef murders. They asked him on this ride what he saw. Just as he had seen them, apparently they had also seen him. On this ride, Marianne basically confessed to Alan that she knew Tim and Jeff had robbed and killed the Burger Chef employees. 
Jeff was the one driving the van right then, so he pulled over and he made everyone get out. Marianne yelled to Alan to run because they were going to kill him, so he did. And as he was running away, he heard a gunshot. Fast forward to June 1979, several months later. Marianne Higginbotham was found dead. She had been shot in the head, and her body had been put into a barrel and left in a creek. Due to the state of the remains, it was clear she had been there for a while. Because Marianne was frequently out of contact with family, it took the police a while to piece together when she had been last seen. They found that while there wasn't a missing persons report on Marianne, there was an effort to locate her in June 1978 after Marianne didn't show up to work and Tim didn't report to a weekend jail sentence. As they were looking into this, someone who identified himself as Tim called the police and said the two of them had moved out of town and then gave them Mary Ann's parents' contact information. So Mary Ann had not been seen or heard from since June of 1978, which was before the Burger Chef murders even took place. It is believed she was killed at that time. So how was Alan with her in a van five months later. Alan admitted later that the story with Marianne was not true. The police had been putting more and more pressure on him, so he just started saying things that kept them happy and off his back. Because Marianne was found after the murders, Alan likely didn't realize she had gone missing before. As for having seen Tim Willoughby at the Burger Chef that night, Tim may or may not have gone missing at the same time Mary Ann did. So Tim was an abusive boyfriend. So, of course, he was considered a person of interest in her murder. And it looked to the police like Tim had left the area because they couldn't find evidence of him being around after Mary Ann went missing. But after Alan implicated him in the Burger Chef murders, the police really ramped up their efforts to find him, but they couldn't. So this is a bit of a mystery within a mystery. Tim Willoughby has never resurfaced. He could be out there somewhere with a fake name. Maybe he died while he was hiding out all these years. Maybe he was in the area and was at the Burger Chef that night and then took off afterwards. But it's also possible that he was murdered at the same time as Marianne, and the call that was supposedly him saying they moved away was someone else who was just covering it up. There was a sighting or two of Tim around Speedway, closer to the Burger Chef murders, but June 1978 is the date listed on the Indiana State Police website and on NamUs as his date of disappearance. That tells me that the sightings of him are considered unconfirmed. The police do believe he went missing the same day Marianne did and was likely murdered. There was an arrest in this case when someone came forward to say her estranged husband and his associate had killed both Tim and Marianne because they were worried Tim was going to inform to the police about them. They were all involved in an auto theft ring. The men were arrested but then released when there was no other evidence against them found. And as for Burger Chef, Alan has changed his story of exactly what happened. We do need to remember, this was over 40 years ago. He was young and he was drunk at the time. Not to mention, he was in jail when he first got on the police radar in connection to Burger Chef. So you can imagine he didn't exactly have the chummiest of relationships with the police. Helping them out may not have been something he felt called to do, and getting them off his back certainly was. So he told them what he thought they wanted to hear. We do know that Alan Pruitt was at the Dunkin' Donuts that night. We do know he was out in the parking lot. What he saw, we don't know. His most recent memories are that he did see a van, but possibly he didn't see anything else. In the article's that I've referred to where it says the police know who did it. They just can't prove it. I honestly don't think Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby 
are who any of them are talking about. I think it is between the robbery gang and the next tip that came in. And that lead came in in 1984 when an inmate named Donald Forrester came forward saying he had information on the case. He was willing to talk, which included admitting his own involvement, but he wouldn't talk from prison. He wanted to be moved to the Marion County Jail, which is both less restrictive than state prison, but also less violent. They decided to go ahead and move Donald to see what he had to say. Donald Forrester had been convicted for rape, criminal deviate conduct, and criminal confinement after he abducted a woman from her car, and he raped her in the back seat of his car while his cousin drove around. They then started driving to a remote area, and believing he was going to kill her, the woman jumped from the moving car and ran for help. She 100% saved her life. After his conviction, Donald Forrester was sentenced to a total of 95 years in prison on the three charges. According to the Indiana Offender Database, his earliest release date was 2006, and that was only if he was granted parole on the first try. Spending as few years as possible in that state prison seemed a worthy goal. Apparently, Donald's name had already been on the police radar, low level, from early on. He lived in the area at the time of the Burger Chef murders. He was a criminal, which I imagine is behind why a lot of people's names were given over the tip line. When Donald was interrogated by the police in 1984, he had a lot of good information that it seemed only someone involved would know, like how he was able to identify where the bodies were found and their positions when that had not been covered in detail in the media. But Donald also threw up some red flags when he got some basic information way wrong. It's also possible the suggestive nature of the interrogation techniques used may have accidentally given Donald information that he could then wrap into his confession to make it seem more believable. It does not take a master manipulator or a high-level mentalist to do this. Watch the confession tapes on Netflix to see Henry Lee Lucas, who was a sloppy criminal with a low average IQ, falsely confess regularly using information fed to him. Some of that was, in my humble opinion, more intentional than what I think happened here with Donald Forrester. I don't think they were trying to close out cases using him, but it does appear that there may have been some accidental influencing of his story. So with all that preface out of the way, here is Donald's story. He said that Jane's older brother, James, the same one who had issues with Alan Pruitt in jail, owed money to drug dealers. Donald and three others went to the Burger Chef restaurant to threaten Jane, hoping that would scare James into paying up. Except when they did this, Mark stepped in to defend her, and in this fight, Mark fell and hit his head. In Donald's story, Mark was injured pretty badly because they thought Mark was either going to die or was possibly already dead. So they took all of the employees out of the restaurant to murder them elsewhere in order to cover up for maybe accidentally killing Mark. Except they didn't really hide or bury the bodies, and they were found a day and a half later. And I guess they decided to go ahead and rob the place while they were there as well. Donald admitted to being the gunman and said the other men had killed Jane and Mark. He did give the names of these other men. This confession had little evidence to back it up, which is always a problem. And there were also some red flags with it, like I said. Now, one red flag that for me waves pretty high above the others was pointed out by a former lead investigator in Anya Kane's Insider article on the case. One of the people Donald named had been locked up in another state on the night of the murders. There is absolutely no way he could have been there. While there is reason to discount Donald's confession, 
not everyone is convinced it was false. There are a lot of people who still believe to this day that Donald Forrester did it and they just couldn't prove it. Donald's ex-wife did give a statement that she and Donald drove out to a wooded area days after the murders, and he picked up some shell casings from the ground. He then went home and flushed them, and the place they went could have been the murder site. The foresters had a septic system, so everything they flushed went to a large tank in the yard. The police got a search warrant to search that septic tank. And we'll add that to the very long list of reasons I will never be a police officer or a forensic investigator. There are far too many bodily fluids and too much bodily waste involved. So the police did sift through the septic tank and managed to find shell casings, but they couldn't be matched to the crime scene. Investigators spent a good two years pursuing Donald Forrester behind the scenes a bit. In 1985, an Indianapolis Star reporter interviewed Donald, and he first denied being involved, which was the first time he seemed to recant or back away from his confession. But then he said he knew why the robbery and murders happened and that the motive was drugs and homosexuality. And then he said there were two people involved, but he wouldn't name them out of fear for his family's safety. Donald claimed at this point that he only helped get rid of evidence afterwards. But then when the details of Donald's full confession were leaked to the press, the information was published in November 1986, and when it was, Donald recanted fully. He then tried to make some sort of deal later on in exchange for basically another confession, but then he recanted that one as well. Donald Ray Forrester died at the age of 55 in June 2006 while still behind bars. It's not clear what, if anything, he knew. Some think he took the answers to the Burger Chef murders with him, and others think he took absolutely nothing with him because he didn't know. Now, let's get to a couple more recent leads before we wrap up. We have one from 2003. WTHR reported that investigators found a video in the news station's tape library. The man was caught on camera walking up to the burger chef days after the murders. He told either the reporter or the cameraman, you don't want to take my picture. He looked in the windows and then he left. The police do want to speak with this man for two reasons. One, he looked like the sketch of the bearded man. And two, there was a red van in the frame in that footage And the police do believe a van was used in this crime. This van had mud on the driver's side, as though it had possibly gone to a rural area recently. So if you happen to be a man who looked in the windows and told the news crew to not film you, go ahead and contact the state police because they'd love to hear from you. So the next lead came in 2007 when that palm print from Jane's car was finally matched. It took so long because it took a while before there was a palm print database and not just fingerprints. They did get a hit on this, and it turned out to be someone who was friends with Mark Fleming's older brother, Kevin. And now is a good time to bring up the brother connection that keeps coming up. Jane Freed's brother had drug arrests and came up in Donald Forrester's confession as not being involved, but being the catalyst that sent the men to the restaurant that night. And Mark's brother, Kevin, was convicted in 1982 when he and a group he was with murdered a drug dealer in order to rob him. So two brothers of victims had drug-related offenses. One had a robbery and murder on his record as well. So now we're back to asking if this case was connected to drugs. I think that's a fair question. And the reason the drug angle has been pursued so heavily is because everyone around this case seems one or two degrees separated from drugs. They did interview the man whose palm print was found on Jane's car, and he honestly didn't know how it got there. Again, we're talking so many years before It's possible he was at the Burger Chef one day and leaned against the car. The police do not consider him a suspect and do consider the palm print was likely just some kind of incidental contact. 
Honestly, it would be impossible for me to go over every single theory out there or the public's persons of interest or even every lead that was vetted and reported in the papers. If you're familiar with this case, you're probably sitting there as I wrap up saying, well, what about this and what about that? Because I didn't include everything. I couldn't possibly include everything. And I think you will want to check out the Murder Sheet podcast to hear more because whatever you're thinking right now, they've probably already talked about it or they have an episode coming up about it. To me, it seems like if you were a white adult male with a beard and you were in Indiana in 1978, you've come up on someone's suspect list. Now, Kevin, Anya, and I do discuss in the after show the sketches and the impact they had on the investigation. That will be out soon. And we do talk about some details that we didn't talk about today. So definitely listen to that. Listen to Murder Sheet. And then if you still have information that has not been covered, definitely reach out because any new angles need to be looked at. The hope is that modern science, databases, and just the speed at which computers can process information might help solve this case. But tips are good, too. If you know anything about the murders of 20-year-old Jane Freet, 17-year-old Ruth Shelton, 16-year-old Danny Davis, and 16-year-old Mark Flemons, please call 317-232-8248. That is the Indiana State Police, and they are in charge of this investigation. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.